It's Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. For women, a trip to the doctor may come with some extra worries that they might not be taken seriously by a healthcare provider, that a physical symptom might be dismissed as psychosomatic, as all in her head. Our next guest is a doctor. In her new book, she says the development of modern medicine was, in a lot of ways, built on wrong ideas about women and their bodies, sometimes really weird ideas about women and their bodies that still have an impact to this day. She says that having a better knowledge of this history can help women to ask better questions and be stronger advocates for their care and help providers deliver better care. You could join in at 800-642-1234. If you're a woman, what level of care do you feel like you get in hospital or clinic settings? Do you feel listened to? Do you apologize for bringing things up in that doctor's office? Do you feel confident, empowered to talk about what's going on with your body? And if you are a medical care provider, think back to your training. Do you think it prepared you to deal with men and women more or less equally? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Dr. Elizabeth Coleman is a clinician and physician scientist who works as a medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, specializing in breast cancer. She's an assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College, and her new book is called All in Her Head, The Truth and Lies Early Medicine Taught Us About Women's Bodies and Why It Matters Today. Dr. Coleman, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Before we start digging into that history, can you talk a little bit about what you see as a, a provider of healthcare to women and as a woman who's needed healthcare yourself in medicine today that made you want to dig into that history? Absolutely. So as you said, I'm a medical oncologist specializing in breast cancer. I've cared for thousands and thousands of women over the course of my career. And in that, really been privy to just how many countless women have told me stories of feeling dismissed, misunderstood, invalidated for their pain, and in some instances, misdiagnosed or not diagnosed. And it's heartbreaking. And also, you know, I'm I'm talking to you as a doctor, but of course, I've been a patient myself and had those similar sorts of experiences and cared for women in my family where it just was absolutely impossible to try to find the care that they deserved and needed. And I, my, my supreme hope is that this book is part of a greater mission to improve the health of women across the country. And big picture, as you look at the rise of modern medicine, uh, the 1800s into the 1900s, I think, yeah. in particular, can you talk about, I guess, the, the atmosphere that the people who were developing our modern, modern medicine were living in, where it started to steer them in weird directions when it came to women? Absolutely. Well, we know that medicine and the experience of illness is not just about the biology of disease, but is inextricably linked to history and culture and religion. And of course, throughout history, there's never really been a Western medical philosophy that elevated women's bodies or their brains, for that matter, as as powerful and as worthy of that as men. And that really, in those themes, really infused the rise of medicine at the turn of the 19th century. One of the things that we know is that medicine became more scientific, more codified. You had the rise of more rigorous standards in medical schools. But as you had this rise of the scientific revolution and germ theory and medical schools, women were increasingly sidelined from that knowledge. Historically, you may have women taking care of other women or women as the caregivers in their family or even women as midwives. But as medicine became more specialized and scientific, women were 
as a part of that sideline. They weren't allowed into medical school. And so all of these fields of medicine that became hyper-specialized, like cardiology and gastroenterology and neurology, were really developed by men with many of the patients being women. And that um, inequity really played out in terms of how women were treated, what was studied, and also what continues to be funded to this day in terms of what we care about in ter- in, with respect to women's health. One thing that really struck me as a powerful visual metaphor is uh, the skeletons of women and men. Yeah. Some of the early illustrations used in medical references when they have an image of a woman's skeleton, they would exaggerate the size of the pelvis and uh, shrink the skull a little bit, you know, anatomically yeah. unlikely. This means something, I think. Talk about that a little. Right. I, I, you know, one of the things that was so really eye-opening, literally, when I was doing the research of this book is the imagery of women. So even in during my medical training, when I learned about the female body or the skeleton for that matter, anatomical textbooks were really skewed towards visualizing the male form. And anytime I saw women's bodies, it was with respect to our reproductive function. So if I were learning about the skeleton, it would be the skeleton of a male form or the heart. It was the heart in a male form or the lungs in a male form. And when you go back in time and you look at the depiction of female skeletons versus male skeletons, it's infused again with ideas about what is women's function and what are they capable of. So whether the skulls were smaller or the hips were exaggerated, that related to how men saw women's bodies literally and figuratively as members of society and what was of value for their for their bodies. Talking to Dr. Elizabeth Komen about her new book, All in Her Head, The Truth and Lies Early Medicine Taught Us About Women's Bodies and Why It Matters Today. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Maybe you have an experience uh, from the doctor's office to share, 800-642-1234. Dr. Komen, you mentioned the heart, and that was another amazing thing. One of the founders, it sounds like, of our modern way of thinking about the human heart and treating it and heart attacks and more in medicine uh, dismiss the idea that women really had heart attacks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> tell us yeah. that story, so, please. So Sir William Osler was one of, I always learned, as one of the most important founding fathers of medicine as we know it today. He practiced at Johns Hopkins and helped develop the residency system and the training, the rigorous training that that medical students go through to this day. And he was always so revered, and he deserves to be revered in many ways. But when I went back to look at, well, what did this founding father say about women and heart disease? It was really quite shocking, case after case of his original records basically referred to women as having heart or or chest pain as hysterical angina, and angina being the word for chest pain. But when he talked about men, well, this was incredibly serious, and particularly the white male with white hair working really hard at his job was at high risk for, that was the classic person that you imagine having a heart attack. And if you think about even in popular culture, this is who we imagine, you know, the man hard at work, in the office, clutching his chest, sweating, having a heart attack. And throughout my medical training, and to this day, when we think about women's heart disease, which is the number one killer of women, most doctors through their training learn that the way that women present with heart disease and a heart attack is atypical. But why would our symptoms be viewed as atypical when we're greater than 50% of the population and it's the number one killer of women? So the language of how these founding fathers refer to women's hearts and other diseases for that matter still plays out in this insidious way when we show up at the doctor's office or don't. 
Women are more likely to call an ambulance on their husband having a heart attack than recognize and know to call an ambulance on themselves. That absolutely needs to change. And that legacy needs to evolve to a more equitable place in our healthcare system. And that uh, particular doctor also points toward the title of your book, All in Her Head, whether we're talking about heart problems or the list goes on and on, this idea that uh, a woman's reported physical symptoms are psychosomatic. Uh, talk a little bit, please, about the origins of that and why it became such a big, a big thing. Well, if you look at the word hysterical and hysteria, that comes from the Greek word for womb. And early on, we know that Greek physicians would refer to the wandering womb as being the source of women's ills. This this one organ was just wreaking havoc throughout women's body. And throughout history, even though we obviously learned that the womb doesn't wander, this idea that something about women made them crazy was pervasive, whether it was our ovaries, whether it was the clitoris whether it was the discovery of estrogen, and my goodness, we're bathing in something that just makes us head to toe completely nuts. Throughout history, you see this specter of the hysterical woman playing out, whether it's in ancient Greeks, whether it's the ancient, you know, anxious housewife being given way too much volume in the 1970s, or even today, the way we may be overprescribing antidepressants to women who have menopause, who may have symptoms that we could use other medications for other than just throwing antidepressants at it. And you give an example of a patient uh, who's diagnosed, I think it's with anxiety. Turns out she's had, uh, what, Epstein-Barr, the virus that causes mono, causing the problems for years. This hasn't gone away. Uh, Sometimes we just are quick to throw that anxiety label now on women, which, which may be real, but it might hide something else more treatable. Well, of course, anxiety is a vicious cycle. If you feel like you have something intuitively medically wrong with you and you're told consistently that you're just anxious, well, you're going to become more and more anxious because you feel like something's wrong. You feel like nothing's being addressed. So, of course, many of these women were anxious. The story that you're talking about was um, a a well-known journalist who spoke to me about, you know, she had been in, in war settings and war zones and really didn't suffer from anxiety. In fact, she had had a history of a cancer diagnosis and, and know, and knew, you know, I know when I'm anxious, I know when I'm, when I'm stressed out and she developed Bell's palsy. She had several other neurologic symptoms and went to many different neurologists who said, I, you know, I think that this is really quote unquote all in your head and you're just anxious. Ultimately, she finally found a different neurologist who validated, you know what, something's really wrong here. You have a reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus. She was given antiretrovirals, which treated that and, and ultimately got better. But for this woman who had been in such high stress situations and anxiety provoking situations to have to repeat over and over again, I am not anxious. This is not all in my head. Something is wrong and you need to help me is a constant refrain I hear from so many women, which is why when I say, oh, the title of my book is all in her head, there's almost this collective sigh and women want to share their story of what has happened to them when they were dismissed, when they were told they were just anxious, when something happened to be actually really medically wrong above and beyond anxiety. We're talking to Dr. Elizabeth Coleman, medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Her new book is called All in Her Head, The Truth and Lies Early Medicine Taught Us About Women's Bodies and Why It Matters Today. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a question for our guest about her book, her look back at uh, the history of medicine? If you are a woman working who has worked in the medical field, what was your experience like? Do you have experiences as a patient you'd like to share with us? 
you're willing to share with us. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Komen, medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Her new book is called All in Her Head, The Truth and Lies Early Medicine Taught Us About Women's Bodies and Why It Matters Today. Let's go to your calls at 800-642-1234. Sierra is with us in Watoma. Sierra, hello. Hi there. Um, I am a current nurse practitioner student, and so in my clinical rotations, I've seen a few things, um, two things mainly. First is that women are um, mainly the caregivers that we re- that we look out to um, for, you know, they're the ones that convince their husbands to come in. They're the ones who should know their medical, um, their medication uh, treatments and um, procedures and wound care and that kind of stuff where they're the ones we usually spend the most time um, educating on. And then second, I actually had a patient who was going to the, um, an elderly patient who was going to the ER uh, for chest pain. And eventually they, um, her primary care provider diagnosed her with anxiety, um, but put her on a 30 day uh, heart monitor as well, just to see if there's anything else that had been going on. Comes, come to find out she had third-degree heart block um, and needed a pacemaker, like, immediately. So I thought that was interesting to share as well. Sarah, thanks for sharing those experiences. A couple interesting points there. Dr. Coleman, what strikes you? Thank you so much for sharing. And unfortunately, your stories are all too common. Um, with respect to women being the caregivers of society, this is absolutely true on every front. And what is particularly compounded by this reality and, and truly heartbreaking is who cares for women when they get sick? What happens when we realize that women are two times more likely, for example, to have Alzheimer's disease than men? And when you have diseases of the aging woman, who cares for those women? I remember Uh, There were several different doctors during my career that said, oh, you know, I wish I had a daughter like you. I I only have sons. So, you know, you really need a doctor who's a female in the family or someone who's a healthcare provider that's a female to really make sure you're going to be cared for. And that's just simply unacceptable. We need to make sure that every member of society both feels cared for and capable of caring for the next person. And historically and to this day, that burden lies with women, which makes it even harder for them to access their own care. I can't tell you how many women will never mix a dentist appointment for their children or a checkup or checking in on their husband to make sure that they go to their doctor's appointment for their shoulder pain, but then come to me and say, you know, I just didn't have time to get my mammogram. I didn't have the time. And that's simply heartbreaking. With respect to the second point, absolutely. Women and heart disease and and chest pain is all too commonly dismissed as anxiety. One of the things that I learned in researching for this book is that the EKG was really developed on the male form and not women, and that the EKG is a snapshot in time of the electrical activity of the heart, but can also vary with respect to a woman's hormonal status and her menstrual cycle. I take care of women all day, every day, and I did not know that fact. So we are clearly missing the boat about key points about women's roles in society, but also their medical concerns across the board, head to toe. Sierra, thanks for the call. Janet is with us now in Eau Claire. Janet, hi. Hi. What did you want to bring up, so, Janet? Well, um, it's an odd subject in some ways, but 
At 16 years old, I was put on Ritalin because they finally diagnosed me with ADHD. And that has become more and more prevalent in the last three years on a lot of social media, et cetera. But people just refuse to believe that women or girls have ADHD. And that's been going on for way too long. And the, the impact it has on our lives long-term is terrible. And I was diagnosed for everything under the sun, anxiety, depression, tried on different treatments without ever thinking that I might have ADHD. So that is, I think, a really big women's health problem at this point. Interesting, Janet. Well, I hope that diagnosis and treatment helps you. Dr. Komen, do we think of conditions like ADHD as uh, for boys or maybe men? Janet, I'm so sorry for your suffering and thank you for your willingness to share on the call today. That takes a lot of vulnerability, I know. And in writing all in her head, I can tell you that so much I, I, I couldn't include in the book, but every chapter I felt could be its own book. And in the um, nervous system chapter, this is something that I heard from countless psychiatrists that we are missing the diagnosis of ADHD because of how we classically expect certain certain symptoms to present and they may present differently in men versus women but across the board i heard that many times that women being diagnosed with anxiety or depression when really they had adhd and these labels and and how in turn we care for women become incredibly important the language of how we listen to women instead of just imposing what we think is wrong with them but really taking the time to listen and one of the things that's really problematic with our healthcare system today and, you know, this is beyond which I can certainly fix as one person is the ecosystem with how we care for patients is often very rushed. We are more beholden to electronic medical record and clicking diagnosis codes because of external pressures or third party players like insurance companies. And we don't have the time that we really want to spend with patients to listen to what's going on, to really understand what they may go, be going through so that we can treat them effectively. But Janet, I'm sorry, your story is, is all too common. And I'm, I'm glad that you have the help that you finally need at this point in your life. Definitely. Thanks again for calling Janet. Dr. Elizabeth Coleman is with us talking about her new book, All in Her Head. Back to your calls now. Catherine joins us from Waukesha. Uh, Catherine, what story did you want to share? Yes, thank you for taking my call. So the good news of this story is that I'm now in my 70s and am very healthy and active. But when I was 45, I kept experiencing an odd pain by my left shoulder blade. And I had reported it to my female primary care physician who kept telling me I was anxious, even though I have never been treated for or diagnosed with anxiety. So one day I am walking across the parking lot going into work, and I developed a burning sensation in the center of my chest. And I did end up going to the emergency department. I work in healthcare. I'm a psychologist, mm. <laughs> oddly enough. And um, I was fortunate enough to encounter a cardiologist who examined me and listened to my symptoms. And when they did an angiogram, my left main coronary artery was 95% occluded. Wow. Catherine, I'm sorry, that's all the time we have. I'm glad you're still with us 30-plus years later. Dr. Goldman, again, Catherine's story, probably she's not the only one out there. 
she's definitely not the only one. And my God, I'm so glad that you were ultimately examined and got the right care by a cardiologist. One thing I want to point out is you said you were seen by a female physician. I think one really important point about my book in this greater mission is that this is not about a war between men versus women as, as providers. This is about really honoring how everybody, man and women, can care for women better. We know that we need a diversity of spirit of the way that we care for women. Historically, women, and we know to this day, spend more time listening to patients, maybe seen as the mom consult where we're more empathic. There's absolutely no reason why male physicians cannot model what we know women may do better in some instances. It has to do with what we value in our healthcare system. Some of the most incredible providers that I work with are men. And certainly this isn't necessarily about the sex you were born with, but how we value some of these more historically seen as feminine traits in both men and women and offer that care to everybody equitably. Catherine, thanks a lot for that call. And just our last few moments, Dr. Coleman, are we doing better? I think we are doing better. I think that, you know, if you look at the White House right now, there's the Women's Health Initiative to improve the kind of funding that we spend. You're having me on this show, which means that there is value to this conversation. I think there's a growing groundswell where women are advocating for themselves and saying, I need to be heard. There's lots of reason to have hope. And I'm so grateful for your audience today and their participation and for our shared collective drive to improve the health care of everybody. Dr. Coleman, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's Dr. Elizabeth Coleman, medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. We've been talking about her new book. It's called All in Her Head, The Truth and Lies Early Medicine Taught Us About Women's Bodies and Why It Matters Today. Remember, you could share these conversations online at WPR.org or go back and listen to archive conversations as well. Again, find all that great WPR content online at WPR.org. I'm Rob Ferret. Stick around. There's more to come on Central Time. You're listening to the Ideas Network. Central Time, I'm Rob Barrett. The Mississippi River is facing a growing list of environmental challenges that directly affect people in Wisconsin and the nine other states it borders. U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin introduced a bill last week that would create a federal program to oversee the maintenance and protection of the river. The Mississippi River Restoration and Resilience Initiative would organize funding and action plans to protect habitats and restore water quality, among other priorities. It would be based on the success of the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative that was started back in 2010. A similar bill was introduced in the House in 2021 and failed to gain traction. Lawmakers hope this version can attract more bipartisan support. U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin is a Democrat representing Wisconsin. I talked to her about the bill last week. Can you give us the basics? What is in this Mississippi River Restoration and Resilience Initiative? So, uh, look, the Mississippi River is a water highway for uh, made in Wisconsin uh, products, goods. It's also a fresh water source for millions of families and really an iconic uh, 
American landmark that attracts outdoor enthusiasts and visitors to the Badger State. But while the Mississippi is an incredible resource for Wisconsin, we know that extreme weather events like flooding are becoming more and more common. Uh, pollution and environmental degradation is impacting its health, and we see invasive species uh, as a growing threat. So in many ways, we're hoping with this measure, the uh, Mississippi River Restoration and Resiliency Initiative Act, that we can sort of replicate the immense success of the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative and um, really double down on our efforts to restore and protect the mighty Mississippi. I wanted to ask about funding. And as I understand it in this version of the bill, uh, funding is kind of left TBD, fill in the blanks later. Uh, Why is that? Well, um, first of all, the um, opportunity to get this measure advanced will probably be more streamlined if we uh, leave the appropriation of funds to the Appropriations Committee rather than doing it in the um, bill that authorizes this new program. Um, I can tell you as an appropriator, I would be uh, looking to make sure that it enjoys healthy funding. Um, By way of contrast, the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative is funded at around the $400 million annual uh, figure. And uh, we think that uh, it would be a little less than that to undertake uh, the projects that this bill involves uh, uh, for the Mississippi. Uh, but still, uh, uh, we're, we want to authorize the program uh, and follow on with the appropriation of funds uh, at a later point. Can you give us a sense of the kinds of programs that we might see uh, from the shores of the Mississippi River if this goes through? Yeah, so... Um, In terms of grant funding that we would want to make available to communities along the Mississippi, um, they would focus on four uh, predominant areas, water quality, um, addressing flooding, uh, protecting habitat and reducing invasive species, and environmental justice. So those would be the major areas. In addition, this bill sets up uh, specific Uh, uh, office within the uh, Environmental Protection Agency uh, that would really oversee the program. With the with comparable Great Lakes programs, uh, one reason I think it's gotten funding and support over the years is Democrats live on the Great Lakes and Republicans live on the Great Lakes. The same is true for the Mississippi River. Do you see a, a sense that there might be bipartisan support for this? I certainly see a path to bipartisan support. And um, I think the model of the Great Lakes uh, is a very good one to follow. I'm going to be speaking with my colleagues up and down the Mississippi uh, to hopefully uh, sign on um, uh, sign on to the bill. And uh, I think there's a, a lot of reason to be hopeful that this will be a bipartisan effort. As you talk to constituents who live uh, on the river or in its basin here in Wisconsin, do you get a sense of urgency that they're seeing uh, with the risks of flooding, with the risks of invasives and so on, uh, a sense that, yeah, we need to do something now? Absolutely. Um, You know, I think of Wisconsin, uh, we have uh, an east coast, which is like Michigan. We have a north coast, which is like Superior. And then we have our west coast, which is 
the St. Croix and the mighty Mississippi. And um, people who live along the river in riverfront communities um, have seen uh, significant uh, challenges because of the increasing frequency of flooding, um, extreme rain events, uh, causing uh, flooding along the river. Um, it's uh, something that costs communities dearly. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it, we have to focus on becoming more resilient, uh, but we also uh, need to make sure that we are keeping uh, an eye on the uh, uh, water quality and, uh, and concern about uh, reducing pollution, uh, reducing invasive species, and protecting habitat. Senator Baldwin, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. As Democratic U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, who introduced the Mississippi River Restoration and Resiliency Initiative in the Senate last week. Now we'll dig into some of the environmental issues affecting the Mississippi waterway that a bill like this might try to address. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think of the idea of this proposed Mississippi River Initiative? If you want to see additional programs aimed at protecting the river, and if you live or work near the Mississippi River or its many tributaries, what kind of worries do you have? What kind of environmental challenges do you see the risk of flooding in your area? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Madeline Heim is a reporter for a Report for America Corps member covering the Mississippi River Basin from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Madeline, thanks a lot for joining us today. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Well, I invited people who live on the Mississippi River to share their concerns. I'm not the first one to do so. There was a, a survey last year that you reported on. What kind of concerns do people on the Mississippi uh, have about its environmental future? Yeah, so uh, that that survey uh, talked to talked to you know hundreds of basin residents within the Mississippi River Basin and um, it found that people were really noticing and concerned about environmental changes in uh, the basin along the river where they lived so they were worried about things like nutrient pollution they were worried about things like habitat loss they were worried about what climate change was doing to their community and you know subsequently extreme weather like flooding and drought so i think what we picked up from that survey was just that you know people really are keyed into what's going on uh, next to them, whether that's on the river or in the basin itself, and um, they want to see something done about it. Now, without a federal program like uh, this one Senator Baldwin was talking about in place, who's in charge? What Who handles things like uh, river protection, environmental cleanup, uh, and all these efforts that, that might be going on now? So there's a number of organizations and agencies involved um, from really big ones like the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, to much smaller organizations that are working on, you know, localized projects to help restore the river. Um, and I think one thing that, you know, as I've reported on this legislation, both now and when it was first introduced, um, is that, you know, people would really like to see something that can bring all of those groups together. Because right now there are um, so many piecemeal efforts with folks working on issues um, for river restoration. And something like this could kind of 
group them all together um, to at least kind of clue each other in on what folks are working on and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see if this does uh, advance, whether that might be a, uh, a plus. Senator Baldwin, I think, was painting an optimistic picture that there could be bipartisan support. Uh, as we mentioned, similar legislation didn't pass a couple of years ago that had the price tag attached to it. As you uh, follow this particular legislation, what do you see when it comes to its prospects to to advance? Yeah, so when I talked to uh, a number of river advocates most recently about this bill, um, they also kind of had a, a mixed bag of what they expected uh, for, for it to advance. Um, obviously, as you pointed out, the, uh, the monetary tag is removed, so that could make things a little bit more amenable. Um, but on the flip side, you know, it's an election year. Uh, there's other big stuff going on. And, um, you know, we're still working with a Congress that is not super uh, willing to be bipartisan anymore. I think that's one thing that, you know, a lot of folks obviously are comparing this to the GLRI, but that was passed in, I believe, 2010. Um, and things were just a little bit different politically back then. Um, we're working with a little bit of a different landscape now. So I think folks are really hopeful that this could get passed, but also realistic that it it might take a little bit longer. We're talking to Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reporter Madeline Heim about the Mississippi River and the environmental challenges it faces. We just heard a few minutes ago from U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin about legislation aimed at protecting and restoring the Mississippi River. You can join in at 800-642-1234. How important is the Mississippi River to you? Does it play a part in your life, whether you live on it, work on it, fish on it, or recreate on it? Join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have worries about the Mississippi River or nearby waterways when it comes to water quality, invasive species, flooding, and more? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our talk with Madeline Heim, Report for America Corps member covering the Mississippi River Basin from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And she's with us today to talk about her reporting on the environmental challenges the Mississippi River is facing. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions about the Mississippi River and the environmental health of the river and connected waterways? What do you want to see done to maintain and protect it? Do you have a firsthand view because of where you live and or work? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's go to your calls now. Tim is with us in La Crosse. Tim, hi. Hello. What do you want to bring up, Tim? Well, um, I'm concerned about Lake on Alaska is full of weeds. Now where I live on what we call, uh, we call it cat gut slough, but uh, it's a backwater off the Black River and between the Black River and the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And I notice a lot more vegetation. I used to have, you know, kind of like a swimming beach at my place, but now the weeds are coming in and... I guess uh, I do uh, donate a little money to clean water, Wisconsin, and that kind of stuff. But uh, my understanding, maybe I'm wrong, is that the in terms of the pollution in the Mississippi and so on, in terms of factories and 
and water treatment plants and all of that kind of stuff has been um, dealt with, let's say, and we have uh, uh, results from that. The biggest polluter of the Mississippi River is the Minnesota River. I may be wrong, but all that agriculture runoff and that kind of stuff. And from what I have read, if we don't deal with that, we're wasting our time. Tim, thanks for the call. There was, I think, and you reported on this, Madeline, a recent study of water quality and those concerns of agricultural runoff uh, affecting uh, life in the river. They are there. What do we know about that, Madeline? Yeah, uh, I really think this is a super salient point because, um, you know, the the runoff and the pollution uh, that Tim mentioned is uh, is coming from, uh, like he said, um, nitrogen and phosphorus pollution that comes, you know, uh, it can come from industrial waste and pollution, but it can also come from agriculture. Um, and uh, agriculture, as he noted, um, is largely not regulated by the Clean, Auto- Clean Water Act like this uh, industrial pollution has been. And I think it, it just makes a really good point um, with uh, what he noted about Lake Onalaska, because I think a lot of people, when they think of nutrient pollution in the Mississippi River, think about the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which is a um, large hypoxic zone that has sucked the life away from aquatic creatures living there. Um, and uh, that's caused by that nutrient pollution. But the other thing that can cause, or the other result of nutrient pollution can be increased vegetation, increased, um, you know, overgrowth of aquatic species, uh, aquatic plant species in our own waters. So um, like he mentioned, the the overgrowth in Lake Onalaska, I've also reported on um, the Trempolo lakes, which are not themselves uh, part of the Mississippi River, but quite close. Uh, are dealing with a lot of um, nitrogen pollution that's causing um, duckweed and other algae problems. So those problems can, in addition to creating problems very far away from us here in Wisconsin, can create um, problems really close to home as well. And I think there's been some mixed progress on reducing nitrogen and phosphorus in the river. Um, We are seeing some reductions in some places, but I don't think it's happening as fast as people would like it to, to be able to meet some of the goals that have been laid out. Tim, thanks for that call. Sarah joins us now in La Crosse. Sarah, hello. Hi there. What did you want to tell Um, us about Sarah? Well, I just wanted to mention, um, I just wanted to kind of connect a couple of dots when, uh, when uh, Senator Baldwin was talking about invasive species and habitat restoration, um, I, I uh, work for a land trust here in the La Crosse area called Mississippi Valley Conservancy. And we, we work on these same issues by protecting the land, um, focusing on the land, because so much of what's bad that goes into the water is actually coming from the land. And so Part of protecting the Mississippi River is also protecting the land around the river and doing things like the last caller talked about, you know, um, thinking about smart ways to farm where you're not um, having a lot of runoff of of soil and chemicals into the river. But um, so even planting prairies along on the bluffs along the river is a way of holding the Mm -hmm. soil and um, keeping that out of 
keeping things out of from running off into the river. Sarah, thanks a lot for the call. And Madeline, we were starting to get into this a little, but are you seeing uh, more efforts like that that Sarah's talking about uh, geared at uh, restoring habitats like prairie habitat, for example, on the river uh, with the aim of protecting the river? Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and Sarah did a great job kind of outlining, um, you know, what you can do to improve soil health um, from an agricultural standpoint. But I also wanted to raise um, the issue of, you know, replanting and regenerating floodplain forests, which are forests that grow, uh, as the name would indicate, in the floodplain of the Mississippi River. They've really been struggling over the past few decades, um, especially as increased water has started to flow through the river. And so, you um, there are many efforts to uh, try to uh, replenish those species because they can have tons of positive impacts. They create habitat for all of the birds that fly through the Mississippi River Flyway. They can uh, hold back flooding um, from communities that might be flooded if there are, you know, if there's a, a flood on the river. They um, can soak up some of that nutrient pollution that we previously talked about. So I think that, um, you know, that's a habitat that I hear a lot from people about wanting to restore, wanting to protect that, um, prairies as well, and um, also, you know, protecting that agricultural working land um, to try to keep those uh, nutrients uh, on the land where they belong instead of ending up in the river. Thanks again for that call, Sarah. Talking to Madeline Heim from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel about environmental preservation on the Mississippi River. Madeline, I want to spend a little time on something that you uh, reported on. I think this dropped last month on an ecosystem I didn't know a lot about, I got to admit, floodplain forests. And there are some serious problems there. Tell us a little bit about that, please. Yeah, so as I kind of was just mentioning, but uh, would love to, to dig in on, um, the floodplain forests are forests that uh, reside within the Mississippi River floodplain. Um, they used to be a really, really big um, component of the floodplain and have been scaled back as, you know, uh, industry has developed and things like that. But um, in recent decades, and especially in, in the last 10 years, they've experienced a lot of degradation. Um, and, and the main driver of that is coming from lots of water running through the river. Um, this has been one of the, or 2010 to 2020, I believe was one of the wettest decades we've seen on the upper Mississippi River. And that's partially due to climate change, uh, creating a warmer, wetter atmosphere with more extreme rain events, but also due to land use changes such as um, drainage tiles being used on farmland, which makes the water run through quicker. So essentially um, these, these forests withstand flooding normally, that's why they're called floodplain forests, but they've been inundated um, for way longer than they can handle and that's killing them off. And then once they die off, um, invasive grasses can move in and take over the area and that makes it hard for new trees to regenerate. So there's lots of talk right now about you know how we can restore this really vital ecosystem. Um, the Army Corps Fish and Wildlife Service are working on things. They're working on replanting. They're even working on a project um, where they are trying to raise the ground a little bit um, of the of the floodplain that the forests are planted on raise it, you know, six to 12 to 18 inches 
and that would allow uh, those trees to kind of have a, a fighting chance of um, not being too inundated with floodwaters. So I am, uh, as you mentioned, really interested in uh, what will happen with those restoration efforts. And in just our last half a minute or so, Madeline, as you as you talk to people involved in Mississippi River issues, uh, are you getting a sense of doom and gloom or some optimism that challenges like that can be met? I'm really getting a sense of optimism, I have to say. Um, the the challenges are big, um, but we also have a number of partners working on them. As we talked about in the beginning, you know, we've got large groups like the Army Corps and Fish and Wildlife Service, but I'm very energized by these smaller groups that have popped up. Um, one of them that I mentioned earlier, Friends of Trempeleau Lakes, trying to work on reducing that nitrogen pollution. Um, also the Lake Pepin Legacy Alliance up a little further on the Mississippi River, um, which is working on some habitat restoration. I just really feel like um, people are energized about finding local solutions. And I think that's you know how you ultimately make a big change um, is by adding up those local solutions and turning it into something bigger. Madeline, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's Madeline Heim, a Report for America Corps member covering the Mississippi River Basin for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel with us today to share her reporting on challenges facing the Mississippi River. Earlier we heard from U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin about new related legislation. Coming up tomorrow on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, a new report from the American Lung Association looks at the ongoing impact of tobacco in our lives and Wisconsin's laws and regulations when it comes to smoking and tobacco. Get the results. Join in with your thoughts tomorrow morning at 8 here on the Ideas Network. In just a few minutes, we're going to check out a new pipe organ here in Wisconsin, an old one actually going in in a Milwaukee theater. Here's some more organ music in the news. An ongoing musical performance on an organ in Germany just changed the note it was playing for the first time in two years. As reported by the BBC and elsewhere, the music in question is a piece by the late experimental composer John Cage. It's a simple series of chords, the title Organ Squared ASLSP, that stands for As Slow As Possible. And yes, that's the instruction. What does as slow as possible mean? One live performance stretched it out to just shy of 15 hours. But this German pipe organ is, uh, is slowing it down way more with the organ automatically holding notes for years. Started in 2001. Next change of notes, 2026. The conclusion, 2640. If you're looking for some good dance music, this might not be it. Yeah, not a lot of beat there unless you dance real, real slow. Music news you can use. This is Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. The Oriental Theater in Milwaukee has acquired an instrument to match its vintage decor, a 99-year-old Wurlitzer pipe organ. That's one of only a dozen left in the world. It's not your everyday church organ, though. Here's just a few of the sounds it can make. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Have you heard this organ at the Oriental Theater or one like it? Do you have thoughts on live music at the movies like there often was during the silent film era? Have you encountered one of these, uh, some kind of vintage pipe organ in one venue or another? 
Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Kristen Heller is the Chief Operations Officer at Milwaukee Film. Kristen, welcome to Central Time. Hi, Rob. Thank you for having me. All right, we got a little taste of some non-organ-associated sounds this can make. Can you paint us a picture? What does this thing look like? Sure. If you were to look at it from the standpoint of the audience, the only thing that you'd really get to see is the console. And that's the big piece that has all the little keys, it has the pedals, and it's what the organist plays on. But there's a lot that's hidden. Like, for instance, just down in our orchestra pit, there's a secondary piano. They actually have a whole second piano that they can play with. And then up in the chambers, in addition to pipes that you can imagine are big and varying in size, there's also sleigh bells, drums, cymbals. There's a glockenspiel in there. So there's a lot of components that really fill out the different types of sounds it can make. One of my favorites is there's a train whistle that we can use when it's appropriate in films. I understand this is a long-term mission of Milwaukee Film to bring a pipe organ like this back to the Oriental Theater. Can you share some of the, the history? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We took over operation of the Oriental Theater in 2018. And at that time, the organ that had been in there, which was a Kimball from 1931, had been removed uh, to go into a different collection. And that had actually been the second organ that had been in the Oriental before that. There was a Barton pipe organ that was the original one, which was originally built in Oshkosh. And when we took over the, the operation of the Oriental Theater, we knew we wanted to find the right piece. And luckily, when you take over a historic theater, you say you're going to do renovations and you say you're looking for a pipe organ, people tend to come out looking for you. Um, <laughs> and so we ended up having a couple different proposals to look at and review. And we ended up choosing uh, Jeff Weiler's company, which is JL Weiler Inc. And they had this organ and they had, had on, held on to it for about 18 years. And they were just looking for the right partner for this very special instrument. And, and it felt like the perfect fit for us. A 99-year-old instrument. An instrument like that, I know, has, comes with a feeling of history behind it. Can you, can you tell us a little bit of, uh, about what it's like to have this instrument that's seen some stuff over the years, I'm sure? Well, and what makes this one unique is that, you know, when an, an organ is used over the years, like if it's really played, things are going to break, things are going to be replaced so, for instance, the Kimball that had been there before had, had had been maintained and maintained over the years, whereas this one had been in the Paramount Theater in Atlanta from about 1920 to 1960. And then it went to a private collection mm-hmm. with, the, with the plans that it would be someone's private organ room, but they never actually built it. So this instrument is actually fully intact. It's, 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 the way that you hear today is exactly how it sounded back in 1925. Talking to Kristen Heller with Milwaukee Film, looking at a new slash old pipe organ now at the Oriental Theater. So what are the plans? I mean, the the classic days of silent films, somebody would be playing live on this organ along with movies. What kind of performances do you envision uh, for this Wurlitzer? Well, the next opportunity that people will have to hear is that we have a film festival coming up in April, and we're planning for a few of our screens that there will be a little bit of fun fanfare before the films. We're also planning at least one if not two feature presentations throughout this year and we're just working on locking in those details so we'll be able to share those out soon can, can you talk about the restoration process and installation process this is not something you just wheel in and set down right no absolutely not in fact the installation process for this took over a year and thousands of thousands of man hours 
um, to give like we like the getting the big pieces in that was its own little labor of love, and we had a, a small but mighty crew that did it. Um, but in addition to that, when you fully assemble a pipe organ, you're really building out a nervous system. There's actually with our organ, there's about 60 miles of wire that are that made over 14,000 electrical connections, just sort of connecting things from the console to the relay, which is the bit of the brain, and then sending it to all the parts of the organ. So it is a very intensive process. And there's a lot of other steps involved. For instance, our organ chambers are temperature controlled because if the temperature in them changes, the pitch of the organ changes. Um, so tuning is a very thorough process. And it's one that we will be working to maintain and, and working to have it looked over over the years to make sure that it sounds exactly as it's supposed to as we play it. Kristen, thanks so much for sharing this with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor to be here. That's Kristen Heller, Chief Operations Officer at Milwaukee Film. She talks about the Oriental Theater's acquisition and, like the installation of a 99-year-old pipe organ, we're going to look at the role of music in movies and the classic days of pipe organs and silent films. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you gone to see showings of an old silent movie with that live accompaniment or live music for any movie, new or old? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up next on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're talking about the history of live musical accompaniment in movie theaters. After hearing that story about a 99-year-old Wurlitzer organ being installed at the Oriental Theater in Milwaukee, you can join in at 800-642-1234 if you've encountered one of these old pipe organs, maybe watched silent movies uh, with the silence broken by the pipe organ. Join in at 800-642-1234. Jocelyn Sapaniak-Gillies is an assistant professor and director of film studies at UW-Milwaukee. Jocelyn, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Always great to talk with you, Rob. You too. Now take us back 99 years in time. This Wurlitzer organ presumably might have accompanied silent films. Uh, What was the role of the music and the pipe organ as I sat down to watch this movie? Yeah, I mean, it's important to always remember that when we talk about silent films, the movies were never silent. There was always ambient noise, always people talking, even before the era of the pipe organ, which was um, something that was really uh, popular during the movie palace era. Even before that in the Nickelodeon, which is really the precursor to the movie palace as we know it, um, theaters like the Oriental, even in the Nickelodeon, there would be a stand-up piano. Um, Often the exhibitor who ran the theater might give a bit of narration during the film. So there's always sort of this this extra sound that is around um, the movie as as we watch it. But um, once the organ comes into play, well, there's all sorts of like extravagant sounds that can happen. And we heard a few examples of this um, from the pipe organ that has been purchased by Milwaukee Film um, to uh, appear in their theater now. So there would be this really um, excessive big noise, but also weird sound effects, things like doorbells or train whistles, um, uh, even like animal sounds, all of that could be performed with the use of the organ. So it really served to to fill up a bigger um, auditorium space, a space that could seat maybe a couple thousand people even more, um, and would really serve to immerse the audience into the entirety of the filmic presentation. As a musician, I wonder if I had that gig as the organist at the theater, like, 
do I get handed sheet music that was supposed to accompany this movie? Or am I just watching the movie and winging it? Well, it could be both, you know, some uh, often movies didn't come with specific music to be played, right? Like you could decide what you wanted to play um, based on what theater you were in, what you were interested in. And really a lot of it was up to the organist, right? Like what you wanted to do. Did this add to the experience, uh, you think, for viewers having the organ and all the, the sounds and things like that? Or or did people find it a distraction? Or it could have gone either way, I guess, with any sound as with any soundtrack. Yeah, you know, I think it could go either way. We can't we can never really know entirely <laughs> what audiences thought, but it certainly added to the enormity of the experience, right? Like the movie palace is so big, so wild, so broad, right? This kind of sound adds to the spectacle of it. Even though spectacle is of course a visual term, this adds um, an extra element of sensory experience. And I'd like to actually point for a minute to um, to somebody who is kind of really important in the development of the theater organ. We associate uh, the name Wurlitzer with the organ, and they certainly were. The Wurlitzer Company was responsible for um, the dramatic burgeoning of um, movie theater organs across the United States in particular. But there's a figure who um, really is responsible for the development of the theater organ as we know it. And if I can just tell you a little sure. bit about him, because there's nothing I love more as a historian than figures of hubris, madness, and weirdness who Ooh, pop up. Definitely tell us about this. Right? And so often these figures, they're in the movies, right? They are, they are so drawn <laughs> to like this burgeoning industry. So this man, Robert Hope Jones, who's from the UK, he, uh, he starts working in the uh, late 19th century on uh, church organs. And he thinks, okay, well, these church organs, they're really great. I can make them even bigger, even better, even more dramatic. Um, in the early 20th century, he actually moves from the UK to upstate New York. And that's when he begins experimenting with what will become um, the movie theater organ. Hope Jones, he, he's so fascinating because he works in churches, right? But he also was an electrician. Um, he worked for uh, the telephone company as well, um, doing various kind of um, electrification um, uh, procedures for them. So he had both of these skills, both as a musician and as an electrician, and all of this experience in churches. He is the perfect person to come up with what the movie theater organ will be. We think about the theater, too, as a kind of temple to movies. I think it's absolutely perfect that this man who worked on church organs then develops the theater organ. So he moves to upstate New York, starts his own factory, making these organs, and he becomes obsessed with the expressive elements of the organ, how the organ can provide all sorts of big feeling, make like big atmosphere. And he comes up with all of these wacky inventions like the second touch or double touch. And that's where a key can be depressed twice to create two different sounds on the organ. That becomes a standard feature of the Wurlitzer. Um, he does all sorts of elaborate wiring. He's responsible for electrifying the organ in general. Um, he adds percussion. He adds the kinds of sound effects that we hear. Um, but unfortunately, his company fails miserably because when he opens it in the uh, mid-1900s, uh, well, it's right in the middle of a minor recession and he just fails. So Wurlitzer comes in, buys his company in 1910 and keeps him on contractually. Um, but he can't 
go anywhere else because he's under Wurlitzer's thumb. So he can't really take the patent and the work to any other company. And then over time, he becomes this kind of strange ghostly presence in the factory, slowly begins to fade away. In 1914, he killed himself by inhaling gas. And then Wurlitzer ends up with all of the technical accomplishments of the organ, and they get all of the uh, celebration of bringing the theater organ to the United States. But it's really Robert Hope Jones who invented what we now know as the Wurlitzer organ. And Jocelyn, we just have a couple of minutes left. I want to talk about, you know, the end of the organ era. Now, silent films, the dialogueless films, they start to go away. Does the does the pipe organ go away immediately or does it hang around in the movie experience for a while? You know, it does hang around for a while. They were hitting expensive to install and if there's one thing that movie theater owners wanted to do it was get the most bang for their buck right like they're investing all this money they want to see some return on investment so even though um even though sound comes in and it comes in quickly right in 1927 the jazz singer comes out and that is it it is time to convert to sound audiences are demanding it uh exhibitors are demanding it it is a dramatic change but the organ does stick around for about a little bit less than a decade, um, gets played here and there between uh, maybe in an intermission or between features, between like the cartoon and the feature. as kind of like another element of luxury in the movie palace. But gradually over time, they get taken out. They get sold off to churches, which is kind of hilarious to think about a church with an organ that makes like train whistle sound effects. <laughs> Right? Like, is that useful during the sermon? I don't know. <laughs> but they, they really begin to disappear after um, the 1930s into the 1940s. I could think of a couple examples, but uh, does live music come back as a thing for screenings of movies much at all? I saw a Philip Glass's ensemble do Koyana Scotsy live. Wasn't that much different than hearing it recorded. Uh, <laughs> honestly, live music just isn't a thing for movies after the organ era, is it? It's really not. I mean, it has to be like a kind of special event status um, that you'll see um, maybe with some experimental film. You might see it in the 1960s um, in some like avant-garde theaters in New York in particular. So uh, really outside of the mainstream is where you would typically see um, and hear live music accompaniment. Koyana Scotsi is a great example, and I'm actually really jealous of that. That's pretty I, cool. It was, was kind of cool, but could I really tell the difference if they just played the album? I don't know. Um, I got to ask though, Jocelyn, you're super, just a few moments, you're super into film history. Do you love going in to see movies with that pipe organ when you can nowadays? <laughs> you know, I, I almost, I never really get the opportunity to do it. I do think they sound a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. They're a little bit outrageous. But what they make me think of, Rob, is they make me think about this history of of the church and the organ and how that then filters into the history of the movies. And it makes me think about how it really is a sacred space to be in the theater. And we have all these reminders as kind of like outrageous and silly as they might seem. They remind us of all of these larger cultural connections um, and even spiritual connections that movies as an aesthetic and social form have for all of us. And that I think is a really beautiful thing. Jocelyn, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Oh, it's great to chat with you. That's Jocelyn Sapaniak-Gillies, Associate Professor and Director of Film Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She talked to us about the history of live music at the movies and the pipe organ specifically as the Oriental Theater in Milwaukee gets a 99-year-old Wurlitzer.
Now it's time for Wisconsin Life. This month, music fans are looking back on the 65th anniversary of the day the music died. Here's producer Maureen McCollum with a tribute to one of the musicians who passed on that tragic day and his time in Wisconsin. Buddy Holly is a rock and roll legend. In the 1950s, he became a musical torchbearer, helping popularize the genre with his band, The Crickets. They had big hits with songs like That'll Be the Day and Peggy Sue. If you knew Peggy Sue, then you know why I feel blue without Peggy. My Peggy Sue. Holly was a massive influence on musicians like Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen and helped shape the sounds of bands like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, who covered his songs. Holly's life was cut short following a plane crash on the day the music died. Just two days before that, his second-to-last show was in Green Bay, Wisconsin, at the Riverside Ballroom. Author and Buddy Holly fan, Dean Robbins, reflects back on that fateful tour, which included a number of stops in Wisconsin. Buddy Holly's death is usually associated with Clear Lake, Iowa. That's where he played his final rock and roll show on February 2, 1959. Buddy was headlining a tour called the Winter Dance Party. It began in Milwaukee's Million Dollar Ballroom and included stops in Appleton, Green Bay, and Kenosha, along with small towns in Iowa and Minnesota. A callous booking agent scheduled the dates haphazardly. The musicians had to travel hundreds of miles on unreliable buses. Then a blizzard. One night their bus died on the way to Appleton, stranding them on a deserted highway in minus 30 temperatures. They had to set fire to newspapers to stay warm. A couple days later, on the road from Green Bay to Clear Lake, Buddy had his brainstorm. He would charter a plane for a hassle-free trip to the next gig, for himself and tour mates Richie Valens and the Big Bopper. They all went down together in a snowstorm, a tragedy known as the day the music died. Memories will follow me Whenever it turns to winter in Wisconsin, I fantasize about seeing one of Buddy's last shows here in 1959. He played Peggy Sue, That'll Be the Day, and other irrepressible songs that set the style for early rock and roll. No matter how gloomy I feel when I think about Buddy's shortened career, I can't help but smile when I hear this profoundly simple music. With his elastic vocals and ecstatic guitar, Buddy embodied the hopeful, joyful, youthful rock and roll spirit that shook up the record industry in the late 1950s. Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye. Yes, that'll be the day when you make me cry. You say you're gonna leave. You know it's a lie, cause that'll be the day when I die. I also fantasize about meeting Buddy after one of his Wisconsin shows. Back then, rock stars didn't hide behind their security guards. I imagine telling him how happy his songs make me feel, and then offering to drive him to the next date in my car so he doesn't have to travel on unreliable buses or planes. Of course, I can only fantasize for so long before cold, hard reality returns. But he did charter that plane. He died at 22, never knowing that he influenced the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and changed the course of music history. My gloom starts to set in again. Luckily, there's a sure cure for gloominess in this world. 
It's Buddy Holly's music. Author Dean Robbins of Madison brought us that tribute to musician Buddy Holly. Every day it's a getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will surely come my way. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lola Mary Peterson of Appleton. Want to make sure you catch every Wisconsin Life story? Subscribe to our podcast. Find more Wisconsin Life at wisconsinlife.org and on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Maureen McCollum. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, a February tornado in Wisconsin capped off a year of record high heat around the globe. We'll get the latest on climate news and what it means for us here in Wisconsin. And the U.S. Supreme Court heard a Colorado case that would remove former President Trump from the ballot over an insurrection clause in the Constitution. We'll get the latest on the arguments and what's at stake. And, of course, you can join in with your thoughts and the outcome you're looking for. That and more coming up tomorrow here on Central Time.